Hey guys, let's do a little bit of house cleaning here and talk about what's coming up this week on the In The Money Airwaves. Earlier today, the show that dropped was JK and Pete talking the loaded stakes card at Belmont this past Saturday, and they also talk about the Grade 1 Gamble in this week's upcoming Royal 5-Day Meet for Keeneland. JK Plus 1 has John Panagot, that's Javier Castellano's jockey agent on, that'll be dropping sometime tomorrow. Talk Racing with Naomi also has NBC Sport and Santa Anita Vice President Amy Zimmerman lined up. Should be a good show there. And don't forget, we still have that Stronic 5 show every week where Pete and JK break down the sequence and try and give you guys a different way of looking at the races compared to a caveman ticket. They're going to kind of go the ABC route. Don't forget to check that out. And last but not least, last little bit of business, I'm actually doing two episodes of Redboard Rewind. You're about to hear the first one right now. And then later in the week, I have Rachel McLaughlin to go over the Indiana Derby Day card from Wednesday. That should be dropping on Sunday. Look forward to that as well. And now let's get started with this week's first Redboard Rewind. Welcome to episode 41 of Redboard Rewind. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl. Today, my special guest is one of my favorite guests. It's the New York Racing Association's lead handicapper, Andy Serling. Me and Andy go over three races from last Saturday's Met Mile card. Those races are 8, 9, and 11. And some of the angles we cover are why trips are so important in turf races, is Code of Honor possibly a top older horse contender, and why it's also important to look at the company line in the racing form. This is Red Board Rewind. And now I'd like to welcome a very special guest, Andy Serling. Andy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Glad to have you back on. It's been far too long. I think the last time I had you on was episode 16. We're like 30 more episodes in now. So how has it been being back at Belmont? Obviously, with the pandemic, we haven't had much racing. I know you've been doing all the work with FS1, so you've still been able to handicap tracks like Oaklawn and stuff on the in-between. But how is it being back at Naira? Oh, it's great. I mean, I, I feel very fortunate. First of all, I'm one of the very precious few that get are allowed to even go to the track. So <clears throat> from that perspective, I feel particularly lucky. And, um, you know, I, I think I've sort of barnacled off the hard work of a lot of other people that did a lot of work, like, th- th- to get us back in racing. So in that respect, I, uh, I'm appreciative of the hard work of so many people at Naira that that would manage to get us back in action and, um, you know, as well as the governor's office and everybody, the whole state, you know, working together. So that's good. And, um, so I'm happy to be there. I'm enjoying it. Uh, the racing has been good. Uh, it's been a lot of fun with the team on the shows. I think everybody's doing it, you know, getting along really well and, and stuff. So I think all that stuff is really good. So yeah, I've, no complaints and a lot of, um, a lot of positive feelings. For uh, someone like me, obviously watching you guys do the FS1 coverage, it was such a blast having at least one or two racetracks still going throughout the pandemic. Now with being back at Naira with all these horses coming in off, you know, certain layoffs, some coming from, you know, racing at Oaklawn, has your handicapping approach changed now with certain horses knowing that maybe they were trying to get for a race scheduled, you know, three weeks ago and now everything got pushed back? Anything different now with that type of layoff handicapping? 
I don't know how much you can change your handicapping because at the end of the day, let's be honest, handicapping is educated guessing, right? Absolutely. And you hope your your your, your educated guests are, are, are stronger than others because at the end of the day, you're you're competing with your fellow betters, not necessarily compete. That's exactly what you're competing with, you know. Trying to pick winners is one thing, but you've got to pick winners and, 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 and make bets that pay off enough, and that's a, that's just being smarter than the other betters in, in certain situations. So it's hard. I think in a lot of cases, it's more making guesses after the fact, right? You've got a horse that's second off a layoff and try to determine, <clears throat> did that horse need its first start? <clears throat> Take a horse like uh, Front Run the Fed, who won yesterday at Belmont on Sunday. Well, you know, I think it's reasonable to determine that maybe he wasn't ready for his first start at Churchill besides the race working against him. And maybe he's worse than me at a race. And obviously he did because he ran so well yesterday. So I, I, I and there's a lot of those situations that come up on an almost a daily basis. But it definitely is a factor in handicapping. We haven't dealt with as much in the past because the vast majority of horses that we've seen racing hadn't run in three months. Or longer. When you see a horse that you said, okay, this horse needs a race, and then you see such a great improvement like the horse from Sunday, do you tend to make notes of that and formulate it or just a note in the back of your mind like, okay, I was really right about this horse? Whereas, like, let's say the horse didn't run so well yesterday. Okay, maybe I was off. Maybe it's maybe it's just going off form. It wasn't just a layoff insight. Well, I think we're always making mental notes, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm blessed to have a pretty good memory, so... Um, I think we're always making mental notes. And I think, you know, one of the things, one of the cases with, with front run the fed was um, there was another horse in the bar and a first time star that they were very high on. There was a short price at Churchill that didn't run well at all. And then came back at Monmouth on Friday and won quite easily. So I think it was a, a reasonable guess that maybe some of the early starters at Churchill from, from Chad Brown, even maybe those horses um, did need a start. So I think that did come into play. And, and like anything you're doing in handicapping, <clears throat> sorry, you seem to call me while I have a frog in my throat, but <laughs> um, anything you're doing is you're building on the past, right? Is now what handicapping is. Um, trying to remember situations from the past and how they worked out. It doesn't mean they'll work out the same way going forward, but over time, things often do. So you're looking to repeat things that have been successful in the past. And, and I think that's one of them. And there's maybe some more of these or uh, I, I hate the word unique because it's mostly used incorrectly, but it is there is a uniqueness to this situation because we've never faced this before. Mm-hmm. When you see now you're just talking about like how we, we everyone tries to pick winners. To me, I've always said that picking winners is overrated because everyone's so results oriented. And it's really about trying to find value, which I know you do so well on Talking Horses, where you always say, and I love this, you say, this horse is absolutely the horse to beat, but I'm not playing him because the horse is, you know, 8-5 to when he should be 3-1. to And why is it that you think it's so hard to get through to the public? Betting on short-priced horses long-term is such a losing ROI battle. Well, I don't know that it's hard to get through the public. I think that there's a mistaken, a pervasively mistaken notion in a lot of walks of life these days that social media represents the outstanding opinion of the public. I don't think it does. I think social media is the tales on one side or the other, and that's true politically. And I think it's true in racing in a lot of ways. You know, you see the loudest people, it seems like on social media, and that's what a lot of people unfortunately listen to. And I think we all fall victim to that are people who are talking about the races being fixed and just sort of, 
you know, just like ridiculous notions that are not only unprovable, but they're clearly wrong. Um, so I think the loudest people are giving a false impression of the general consensus. I think the general consensus does listen and does understand that the game is about value. Listen, the betters are smart. You know, the money is smart in the pool. Mm -hmm. And I think that the majority of people actually do either want to learn or do understand. In most cases, understand these notions that, um, you know, it's not it's not about trying to find winners as much as you say is trying to find value. And we all have bet a horse that we think of as our whatever, however you want to, you know, most people don't have to categorize them as my first, second, and third, fourth choice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but a horse is your third or fourth choice, a tertiary choice, so to speak, that is going up at 15 to one when you, you feel in your heart, and it's very hard to know without advanced computer programs what the actual percentage chance of horses winning are. But you feel like, gosh, I really thought that horse would be six or eight to one, and it's 15 to one, and while I don't really think this horse has to win the race, I'm going to make my play king off this horse, whether it's paying somebody to win, trying against the exact or try, or how you decide to structure your bets. So that's how, like, you're, I think what your point you're making, that that's how you make money, finding horses that are higher prices that are more likely to win their odds against horses that are getting over bet. I think one of the things that's going on quite a bit at Belmont right now is that Irad Ortiz is being massively over bet race after race after race. And even though he's won a lot of races, he's mostly lost races. So even winning at 30%, right, he's losing 70% of the time. So those are providing opportunities because every underlay is creating overlays, right? And that's how you overcome the takeout. So you, you look for those opportunities. Look for weak links of Irat Ortiz horses. Look for horses that are going off at three, four to five, six to five, whatever, that you feel like, yeah, that horse is actually the horse to beat, but I, I don't think he rates to win at that high a percentage. And if you're right in the long term, that's how you're going to make money. I'm happy you so brought, that's why go ahead. I was gonna say I'm happy you brought up Irad because it's just like the first week of Belmont he was winning, you know, five races a day and everyone's like, Oh, he'll wrap up the riding title by Friday. And meanwhile now, instead of the horse I think like the second day he was like five to one in the opener, now that horse is like three to five and people well, just that that extreme, but maybe <laughs> five to two, it could be five to one or three to one. That's but a big swing. That is a big That's swing. That's a big swing. But, but when know, five to one shots going off at three to one is a huge swing. A hundred percent. When you look at it though, it just seems like everyone just says, Oh, thirty percent Chad Brown bet bet the whole house on him. Well, meanwhile, you know, you have people like, you know, Junior Alvarado who I feel is always you know, second fiddle to a lot of people, and he still hits at a great percentage. I love playing him in turf routes. I feel like he's so underrated as a turf route jockey. Um, uh, I think the junior's an excellent rider. It's a room full of excellent riders, and it's a question of getting the be better mounts. I mean, more than anything else, mm -hmm. Myrat's getting a very, very good choice of mounts. He's a very good rider. I don't get me wrong. He's a sensational rider, but there's a lot of sensational riders in that room. And to just be betting horses because of certain riders on them is just, it's, 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 it's foolish. And, it will be a massively losing proposition over time. And I, I think that is the hardest thing when I teach on the bet squad. Everyone, they come up, they just want to know who the best leading jockeys and trainers are. And, of course, you know, I kind of tell them, I'm like, but just realize I can tell you the IRAD brothers will be very good, but you're going to be betting a lot of short-priced horses. So if you hit three or four races today, you might still end up losing money for the day. And that's such a terrible thing when you feel like you've won so many races and you still go out either negative or break even for the day. Yeah, I mean, some people just want to cash tickets. I, I, you know, I think that's going to separate the people who are going to have more of an interest in the game going forward and the people who are just out to have a good time that day, which is also fine. And that's, 
you know, a lot of the appeal, especially a place like Saratoga, where you get a more um, crowd that's just there to have a great time and not necessarily want to get involved in the game. But people that have an interest in getting more involved in the game are going to get that right away. I don't want to just bet jockeys and trainers. I want to try to figure out, mm-hmm. you know, more interesting stuff going on. And obviously, as you say, you know, when, let's say Chad Brown's winning at 25 to 30%. He's still losing it over 70% and just to constantly be betting every horse he has. Well, yeah, that's a, a shortcut if you're, um, if you're, if you're just trying to pick winners, but it's not really what handicapping's about. I know that back in the day in the nineties, you were playing professionally. What do you think was the biggest major step that allowed you to go from the recreational player to, I can do this day in, day out? Well, I had a good bankroll behind me. So I wasn't under pressure to pay my bills and mm-hmm. and, and things like that. So I was relatively, um, I, I was I was relaxed in doing it. Um, I don't you know what allowed me to do it. I, I had left a job where it had been good for me, and I didn't feel like continuing to work at that time downtown. So it just worked for me, and I always wanted to do it. And it was also a different time. I mean, I don't. I know it wasn't that long ago. It was only 25 years ago. It was 94, 95, 96, 97. Um, but the game was different because I'm going to say the biggest change in the game from then till not that many years later was DRF's formulator. Mm-hmm. DRF's formulators allowed you to do things that I, in, in a very short period of time that took a long period of time. What I do on formulator now in an hour took me three to four hours, if not more, in the old days. So there was a lot more work, um, but the payoff was much better, um, especially down in Florida. In Florida, Gulfstream in the winter in four, five, and six, and even seven. I wasn't there that much in seven, but mm-hmm. I was there for the whole meet those years. It was a lot of work, but you uncovered a lot of good things. And what happened was you're betting horses that probably now would pay $7 that were paying $15 back then. So the rewards were that people weren't as educated playing it. And now they're far more educated. They understand things a lot better. Once again, not about picking winners, about getting paid. And back then you really got paid. I don't think the handicapping was so much better back then. I think the payoffs were better. And now that we have now that we have stuff like Formulator where it boosts the average player to, you know, maybe an above average player because oh, they can go in, they can break down a trainer stat where you know, Chad on the dirt might be 0 for 15 or 0 for 20, which, you know, isn't the biggest sample size, but it's a big enough one when the horse is going to go off at a shorter price that they know to avoid him, where if maybe they would just look, you know, I know the last time you were on, we were talking about the t- the bad DRF stats at the bottom of the page and how they are just such a wonky way of, like, you can't break down a terrible. trainer stat that way. They The first-time trainer it's, stat, it's, the, it's, go ahead. Terrible. No, it's terrible stuff. They should get rid of that stuff. You should tell people to go to Formulator if they want to look at trainer stats. It's completely misleading that stuff down there. Um, the other thing that's changed, not to interrupt, but is um, video, the access for watching races on the Internet. You know, now I can watch 15 races in 45 minutes. Back then, if I wanted to watch 10 races, it took me two hours during the day going to the replay center for the next day and, you know, getting them and you know, getting them to put the video in the, the back and then rewinding it, waiting your turn in a very cumbersome process. And even once you start taping races at home, you had to go through your VCR and fast forward and rewind and all that stuff. Now you just go on to Naira Betts and they've got videos for every racetrack around the world. And in seconds, I get the replays up with head-ons and you get the replay work done in 45 minutes when it used to take you hours and hours. So it's available to everybody. So if you want to watch races, you want to trip handicapping, it's really available. So all of these things that were kind of esoteric concepts and took enormous amount of work 
they take a lot, they still take some work, but a lot less. So that stuff is there. And, uh, you know, I also think the biggest change, though, in the game are the computer, the CAW players, the, mm-hmm. the, the computer assisted wagering that are a part of the pools and, and often involved in late odds changes. And, and they've, they've made it even tougher and the game is more normalized. It's hard. It's very hard to win. Very, it was always hard to win. Now it's really hard to win. Do you feel like with it being so difficult to watch the race replays back in the day that it just made you that much more concentrated when you're doing it? Whereas now, like I, like you said, you can go and watch you know a whole card in 45 minutes, but you can do it any time. So maybe it makes people almost lackadaisical in a way that knowing that they can get it at any time, and maybe they're not as focused when they're doing it. I can't speak for others, but lackadaisical isn't part of my handicapping approach. But it makes it more lackadaisical during the day because back then. Take Gulfstream. At Gulfstream, you watch the race. And when you watch the race, you took notes and you got horses trips and you worked on trips. Then we used to have a TV monitor by the big monitor where a lot of us watched the races on the second floor of the great old Gulfstream. There were a couple spots mm-hmm. you could go to. We, there was one really cool spot way above the grandstand seats I like going to where nobody would hang out. This little sort of room, this little square, little, little like quadrangle or something. Um, and then there was another channel which we had on. And immediately after the race was run, it showed the pan and the head-on. So you'd watch the pan. And so now you had two pans and one head-on. And you took more notes. And then the regular replay, they would show the pan and the head-on. So you had three opportunities to watch the pan and two to watch the head-on after the race was run. And there were a lot of big fields back then down there. And so you've got a real chance to take a lot of notes. And most get almost all, and you, know, you, you get in practice doing that, and you get all the notes. You got the race covered. But then don't forget, now when the races, when the horses come back, you've got to go to your old programs and pull the notes up and write them into your racing form, put them in. Now you can just put it in formulator if you want to take notes that way. Or you don't really have to spend as much time during the day watching races because you say you can go back and watch the replays easily. So it's, it's changed it dramatically. And the amount of time and effort necessary to get work done, even if you're doing four or five hours of work a day, that's work that was eight, ten hours easily back in the day. That was it. You're playing full time. That's your job. That's what you're doing. But it's still a lot of work. Let's take a crack. Race six days a week. I mean, I 100 percent agree. I still don't know how you guys do it for so many years at Saratoga doing you know six days a week. To me, I can't. You must be like brain fried by the end of the meet. Well, we used to do it all year long. So when you did it all year long, you didn't notice as much. Just the way it was. I mean, when I was younger, I mean, I, I we there, there was no racing in New York on on what. Tuesday, Tuesday. Mm-hmm. I go to the Meadowlands on Tuesday. I go to Meadowlands on Tuesday night in the eighties, since the nineties. So back when the Meadowlands was the place to be back in the eighties. Awesome, loved go. The Meadowlands racing was great into the mid nineties, up till about the mid nineties, early mid nineties. Sensational racing, loved it. I wish I could have gone. Hearing stories from my father, it makes me kind of jealous that he was able to go on those big nights. Loved great nights. I went that. I mean, I even went. You know, when I was working, I would go there two, three nights a week, just mm-hmm. taking the bus from Port Authority, the big line to wait to get a, You get there on nights and you wait for three buses to get there. <laughs> That's how busy it was. Great. It wasn't that long ago, you know. Anyway. What do you say we get cracking onto these races? We picked three races. Uh, the first race was race number eight at Belmont from Saturday. It was the grade three poker going one mile on the Widener turf course. What did uh, you like in this race, Andy? What did I like? I like Hawkish, who got a terrible trip. But, um, uh, this is a very strange race because you could probably take the poker and teach a, an entire seminar on race watching and trip handicapping and pace analysis and a whole lot of stuff. And I'm not sure 
how much it's going to matter going forward because it was such an oddly run race. Um, and Paul Matisse made a comment about it on Twitter. Um, and, and, and Paul's one of the smartest people in racing. Um, just about how oddly the race was run with that. And even with the turf being closer to good, mm-hmm. it was a very, very crazy slow pace. And did so many things happen, right? Um, the winner, and the winner's a nice horse, but the winner was also ridiculously lucky because not only did he get an absolutely tremendous trip, but so many other horses got in trouble in the race. And I don't think the pace ended up affecting the race particularly because I'm a believer that even though I believe in pace, I think race dynamics sometimes supersede pace. And in this race, I think they did. And <laughs> Joel Rosario made what should have been the right move in moving early from the back with mm-hmm. seismic wave because the pace, in doing so, he ended up not only moving a little soon, but he also freed up social paranoia, who he essentially had buried to his inside. And I think in retrospect, if you're Bill Mott and Joe Rosario looking at it, you're thinking, man, I wish I had just waited another quarter to five sixteenths of a mile to make my move, because then social paranoia wouldn't be able to get out and he wouldn't have beaten me. So in doing so, it freed him up. But in the meantime, because of the ridiculous pace and the field bunching, horses like Ballot Point, who got left and then rushed up and then got in traffic, and I don't know if he was going to run anyway. He didn't seem to have anything. But Hawkish, who got buried in traffic and... You know, he couldn't get through it all. And, and while Manny claimed against Irad, it wasn't Irad's fault. Manny just never had a hole with Hawkish. And valid proposition was brought at the race earlier because he had the outside post in the clear. So he was out in the clear and he's a bit, I guess he ran off a little bit, but the pace was so slow. So he moved too soon. And it just created a, a really oddly run race. And taking nothing away from social paranoia, but he was a very fortunate recipient of circumstance that involved a lot of horses in that race. And yet he was the one that finally just got to make that last move and completely saving ground till he angled out mid to late turn and an unencumbered run, which is so important on those wider races where where the seven furlong mile races, you have mile 16th, where outside, where, where being wide on the second and the final turn just doesn't matter. Um, it, it, it really was an interesting race. My, I don't know what you think about what you do, though, getting forward, because I'm not sure how much those trips are going to matter even going forward. It was such a weird race for me. Obviously, you had to start off with Got Stormy. You know, 12 months ago, it was, oh, Got Stormy's in the race, easy single now, where it's like I can't wait to see Got Stormy in the entry box so I can play against her because she's just been so weird this year. The race couple back at Santa Anita was all right. But other than that, she's been kind of disappointing. I, I, I've been on the social paranoia train for like over a year, all these races, seconds, third, couple wins. And then in the Fort Marcy, I just, this was the race where I thought maybe he's finally going off form and I can now like, you know, drop the horse. And then of course, something like this happens. Seismic wave. When I saw him make the move in the race, I was excited. I was excited. Cause I'm like, Oh, now this will help social paranoia. This might help get social paranoia out. And the horse I had picked was valid point. So I was already way dead in the water at that point. It it just seemed to me like, like you said, this race, going into it, it was very confusing to me because I knew I wanted to play against Scott Stormy, but I couldn't really find anything to even play in this race that got my you know blood well, boiling I enough. I picked Hawkish because I, I figured he'd be a very good price, and he did finally show life last time, and I think he was a good pick in the race. I just think I was a bit unlucky. Whether or not he was going to win, I don't know, but he clearly was outrunning his odds. That's what I'm trying to do, find horses that are significantly uh, outrunning their odds. Uh, yeah, it was a bit of a domino effect. The dominoes sort of fell in the right way for social paranoia. He's probably better than a mile, but he's also been 
a very fortunate recipient of circumstances in both of his wins this year. He got a sensational ride by Florent Giroux when he won Florida in a race where there was a massive amount of pace and middle race moving, and he just stayed in the rail and was the last man standing. In a lot of ways, Jose Ortiz did the same thing here. It wasn't a fast pace, but the race dynamics worked perfectly for him. And I'm not saying he's not a nice horse, but he's he's been fortunate in both of his wins this year. And, you know, it's not like he had a bad trip in the, in the as you mentioned, the Fort Marcy. Mm-hmm. And you can say we couldn't get a mile and eight, but wasn't that race showed that he was a mile and a mile? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I think at the end of the day, he needs to be in races that fall apart and be the last man standing. And maybe that'll happen in another race, but I, I, I wouldn't bet on it. Now, with your top bet being hawkish, and this was the start of the pick four, what was your wagering going into this? Did you have anything going, or were you just going to start a pick four? Where were you going in this race? Uh, I think I bet the pick four, and I got eliminated there. I used valid point hawkish and valid proposition i've never liked valid point but chad brown's very high on him so i respect chad's opinion and it was weird i never thought he was that good it was weird too because when you were when i was listening to talking horses you said like where is this horse run a fast enough number and i was like oh as i picked him and my picks were already in for the daily gallop handicapping contest i was like oh wow he makes a really good point i don't know how i just missed that this horse's top is a 92 i guess when i see slow improvements on turf horses i just keep thinking they're going to climb up the ladder a little bit but still, at the price of what he was at three to one, it just seemed definitely too short. And I just, I think I made a mistake, just not clearly looking through the buyers and realizing how much of a deficit he was going to be at, whether or not Chad I, I, likes the horse or not. He had a terrible trip in this race, so if you like him, then you're supposed to give him another chance. Mm-hmm. But I don't like the way he ran, and I don't, I don't know that he's that good a horse. I think he was very fortunate to find a very, very, very weak field in the Secretariat. But, you know, maybe I'll be wrong going forward. Andy had, the first time. Andy had a couple horses in the pick four. I was high on valid point. Let's see Social Paranoia's win here in the eighth right now. And they're off. Got Stormy was away. Well, value proposition on the outside. And a dream friend. And it is Dream Friend to take the lead from uh, Got Stormy. Hawkish is in between horses. Now moving up is Valid Point. Valid Point takes third. Then it's Hawkish and uh, Value Proposition. Then it's a little more than a length to the uh, duo of Eons and Social Paranoia. Seismic Wave is the trailer in eighth as the field moves up the backstretch after a quarter in 24 and two. Dream Friend leads here by a length. The mayor, Got Stormy, runs in second with Valid Point just in behind those front two and third. Value proposition on the outside is there in fourth, three and a half lengths off the lead. Then it's Hawkish in fifth, followed by Longshot Eons, then Social Paranoia. Seismic Wave remains at the back. Dream Friend remains on top as the field goes around the far turn. The half was 49 and one. Got Stormy still in second. And now Seismic Wave is making a big run on the outside. And right there is Value Proposition. Seismic Wave, Value Proposition, Got Stormy, Dream Friend at the rail. So it's four of them stacked across the track as they come for the head of the stretch. Got Stormy and Dream Friend, and they are right together. Value Proposition on the outside is Seismic Wave. Hawkish is looking for a way through. Valid Point is down at the rail as they pass the eighth pole. It is Got Stormy. Here's Value Proposition. Here's seismic wave and here's social paranoia on the outside and social paranoia picks up the pieces to win the poker 
social paranoia over seismic wave, then value proposition, and the time was 136 and 1. And the number five, social paranoia, wins the race, paying 1180 with a 100 buyer. Andy, I know we've been talking a lot about trips. What do you do with a horse like Got Stormy now? Do you just think that she needs the, the class relief, or where do we go with a horse like that? I wouldn't bet her in any race she runs in anywhere at any time. Um, to me, she's a classic example of a horse that was very good, but she's not the worst she was once at once. And I, I just think that she just, I wouldn't, I, I'd be very shocked if she's ever competitive in another race again. God bless her. She was a great horse last year, but not this year. Not to get off on a tangent, but for me, when they were talking about the eclipse, I love this type of horse. Cause I like a horse that runs, you know, once a month, once, you know, month and a half. And when they gave once it to- a week. Yeah, and when they when they gave it to Uni, I was just like, so what we're doing is we're capitalizing on horses that run four times a year, whereas this horse that's ran her guts out for you know nine or ten races throughout the year and enjoyed it, it just seemed to me like Uni was a great horse, and I know that she that she won the Breeders' Cup, but like, why are we now building the systemic idea of race four times a year, only get seen four times, and then retire them immediately? This is why a lot of the good horses I think are just missing in racing now. I, I don't think that's unfair, but the reality is is that people put way too much emphasis on the Breeders' Cup in all of these Eclipse Awards. Mm-hmm. And there have been a number of Eclipse Awards decided over the years that I wouldn't agree with. There are simply people that aren't paying attention to races. And I mean, I don't need to get into a long tangent, but I think there's way too many people having a vote for Eclipse Awards and way too many people that don't follow racing enough that have a vote. Um, so I think it's, I don't really pay attention to them. I don't care about them. I don't worry about them. If I have friends that have horses, I hope they're happy with if they get Eclipse Awards. <laughs> but other than that, I couldn't care less. One last thought. Obviously, you said that you didn't have the best opinion, so you played hawkish or low price. I feel like I see so many people that don't have an idea, and they just default to the favorite, which is the exact opposite of what you want to do. Because I think that people, if they don't have an idea, should either A, pass the race, or you should find that horse that you like maybe only 10% of the time. Because... All you have to do is hit one in ten. You're going to be profitable compared to I like this favor, even though you know the horse is dropping three levels in class, and you know the horse was claimed last time, and it's red flags all over the place. I think, like you say, people just want to cash tickets. Do you think there's ever going to be a way to break that psyche in the community that don't just default to the favorite if you don't like the race? God, I hope not. <laughs> right. For, for, for mine and uh, your sake. You know, I can't, I can't tell you what to do about the collective psyche of the nation or the world. <laughs> if, I, if I could solve that, maybe we could solve a lot of problems right now. But uh, my, I can only say what I do. And for me, the longer I have to look at a race to make picks, especially, but in general, but especially higher level races, which might be more formful than some of the lower level races, the more I'm convinced that I need to try to find an alternative to favorite because a lot of times you look at a race, you go, you know what? I really can't come up with an alternative to favorite. I'd like to, but I can't. You're not supposed to just pick against favorites or shorter price horses. But when I look at a race for a long time, it's probably because I have reservations about the shorter price horses. So in that case, I'm going to try to find the horse I think is the most interesting at a price. And, you know, I had this discussion on Dog Norton Anthony the other day where he and I, as we frequently do, completely disagree. <laughs> I do not believe that that my job is to put the most likely winner on top i think my job is to try to put the horse on top that i think i'm hoping in a lot not in every case you're not you know all races are different but will hopefully provide the best value so i'll frequently that's why i think a lot of my second and third choices will win 
um, because, you know, they're more logical types. You'll see shorter prices. The Saturdays, for example, had a lot of second place finishers mm -hmm. winning. And they were favorites for shorter prices. We saw a lot of shorter prices on Saturday. Lacoma, who I thought was the worst to beat in there. But I took a shot and, and tried to beat him with Mr. Freeze, who didn't run a step. But, you know, you're going to see that in the course of things. But I think I'm looking for horses that are in the middle ground to higher ground towards my top picks as alternatives to people. Because to me, you know, a, a, a good handicapping show, if, if on horses is good, it's offering people alternatives to the obvious things they see in their handicapping. Just doing a TV show and delineating why shorter price horse is going to win is helping nobody. And it's a monumental waste of time. And nobody should or would watch it. And there has nothing to offer. I think you want to try to find things that maybe a lot of people didn't think about and get them thinking more about the races and present the racing in a more interesting manner to get people more interested in racing in general, not just that day's races, but as a game and to present what's so fascinating about the game, which is that it, there's a lot going on, especially in good racing. For me, talking horses has always been about that player that, you know, worked the extra overtime this week and missed the replays and couldn't get to it. And you guys just do such a good job. And I'll admit, when you and Anthony disagree, it is it is good to get the contrarian view of both of you. And for, you know, when people say, you know, oh, Andy's just, you know, killing these guys on talking horses, I just say, Andy puts in more work than anyone I've ever known in racing. I've heard stories. You'll be on the set for Talking Horses before the day, and you're looking at the card three days from now. And I'm just like, no one else is doing that in this business. So he's allowed to, you know, if he thinks that someone's coming in, you know, shorthanded or just not with a 100% idea, he's just trying to correct them and make it so people understand what's happening. I don't know what I'm allowed to do, but I'm going <laughs> to do what I feel like doing. I don't know. You know, I love Anthony. He's a great guy. He's a great friend and a great guy, but doesn't mean I'm not going to disagree with his opinion. I've been disagreeing with my friend's opinion since I was in high school. Why would I stop now? <laughs> just racing, you know, it's just opinions and the races are run. And yeah, I think people should be called out if their, their opinions don't lack um, substance. I think it's a great you want thing. To an opinion? Back it up. If you can't back it up. You shouldn't be giving it. I love I think it. That's true about life. I, I love it. It's a hundred percent. 100% correct. Let's jump into race nine. The grade one, I can't say run happy because I've said it so many times in this podcast. We'll just call it the Met Mile, going one mile on the dirt. You don't work for Nihilus. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. Uh, this was a race for me where horses like McKenzie and Code of Honor, I was going to try and beat. And Vacoma to me off that the last two races just seemed like a possible bounce candidate. I didn't know how much he was going to bounce or if he would, but usually when you see a horse run those two big races back-to-back, it's just something that I just don't think the horse is going to improve. And if he's going to decline now, I want to try and find that improving horse. Uh, you obviously went with Mr. Freeze trying to beat Vacoma. What were some of your thoughts with Mr. Freeze? Well, let me just say, I don't agree with the bounce, the concept of bounce theory at all. I think it's a, it's a horrible, lazy way to look at racing. I think a number of things, first of all, there's often a reason that horses run particularly well and come back and don't run as well. It has a lot to do with trips. Okay. And you could say that with Vacoma things set up very well for him to run happy Carter. Well, the same thing in the run happy Met, right? Mm -hmm. um, things set up very well for him on Saturday. And good horses don't bounce. The difference between the really good horses and the sort of everyday run-of-the-mill horses, general horses, is good horses deliver time and time again. That's one of the things that sets them apart. And I think that just believing that you run a big race and you come back and not run as well that's a flawed way, in my opinion, of looking at racing. That's each their own. As far as Vacoma, I wasn't against him at all. I just thought Mr. Freeze was an interesting price alternative. I thought Vacoma was way the worst to beat. The worst I was against was McKenzie. Mm -hmm. And I think there were two schools of thoughts from McKenzie. 
each one having a valid opinion. In my opinion, he has, did not run well in Saudi Arabia, which is unlike him. And then he came back and didn't run well in winning the Triple Bend. So either there was a very real chance. He's nowhere near the horse he once was. He is five years old. And other horses are on the way up. And he appeared to be on the way down. That was my opinion. I think it proved to be correct in this particular instance. Um, as far as Vacoma, well, he got a, you know, he got a great setup. And I'm not knocking him because I think he's a wonderful horse. But the pace was moderate. Mr. Freeze doesn't seem to be able to run at all anymore. He was nowhere near the pace, and he was supposed to be a speed. And for whatever reason, they didn't send Warriors Charge in a, in a moderately paced race when speed has been his weapon his entire career. And Javier sensed it right away, and he took advantage of the situation. So Vacoma was able to dictate. I'm not knocking him. He ran very well. But I think Code of Honor ran the best race in the Met. For me, Warriors Charge was my pick in the uh, in the contest. I just The horse just seems to try so much. And when I didn't see him get out in the lead, I just said, well, we're going to be in trouble today. And then obviously – Watching, you know, a horse like Network Effect, who's thirteen to one, and Vacoma, who's you know, two to one, nine to five. They literally finished one, two in the in the Carter, and now you see a big price differential here. I just couldn't understand that at all. Well, Network Effect did lose by seven plus lengths in the Carter, and we're and much like Warriors Charge, Network Effect had never run or Warriors Reward. I can never get his name right out. Um, there's too many of those horses with similar names, <laughs> right. um, and I'm getting too old. <laughs> Uh, and I've seen them all too many times. Uh, <laughs> Network Effect had never run a triple-digit buyer. Network Effect was second in that race because he got a sensation. First of all, he's a nice horse, but he got a sensational ride by Irad, and he stayed close to the moderate pace. And Irad put a horse in position that you would not have expected to be there because he didn't take anything away from his horse. And the other thing about Network Effect is he has shown throughout his career starting with his debut, that he's very comfortable running inside of horses. Mm -hmm. And a lot of horses aren't. So drawing the rail and getting the trip and kind of dynamic that he got actually worked was in his wheelhouse. And that's why he ran so well. And the race was running a completely diametric opposed to the, the running style of Code of Honor who's coming from last, right? Yeah. And, you know, the fact that he closed, and I don't worry about the wides as much because ground loss at Belmont, I don't see as that significant. But he was wiring everybody. And he was coming from last against a slow-paced race with the pace completely held together. So I think Code of Honor ran a sensational race in finishing third in this race. Um, and I think Vacoma ran terrific and Network Effect ran terrific. But to me, Code of Honor ran the best race. It's the only horse to make up much ground, and it was way against his, his the flow of what he wants. What did you end up doing from a wagering standpoint in this race? Losing. I bet Mr. Freeze to win and played some exactas and got nothing, obviously, because he ran badly. I mean, I, I, was, I wasn't completely wrong about the race. I used Vacoma and Mr. Freeze primarily in pick fours that were already dead, mm -hmm. but I felt Vacoma was the worst to beat. I did not want any part of McKinsey. That was, that was my play. I threw it endorsed because he was such a big price. When you, um, when you drop out of pick fours, do you ever just play, your, play pick threes right back, or do you think that's kind of like a losing? Uh, ever? Oh, there's never, there's no never in my play, but usually I don't. I, after it all, I don't understand something else. I'm on the air during these races. Correct. So I don't do a lot. I don't mm -hmm. do a lot of wagering for two reasons. First of all, I don't want to get too heavily involved and get annoyed on the air, but also I'm busy and it's <laughs> yeah. hard to construct plays. So unless I've got things done beforehand, I'm just not betting as much or, you know, as in a complicated way. I'm mostly betting to win and bet it exact and keep it simple and, and do my job. For me, it was Warriors Charge, hoping that this horse could keep on the improve. Let's see who wins the Metropolitan Mile right now. And they're off in the run-happy Met Mile. 
and Vacoma was away well and takes the early lead. McKinsey's running in second. Warriors charge up on the outside from third. At the rail is Network Effect running in fourth. Then it's endorsed in fifth, followed by Mr. Freeze. Hog Creek Hustle has one horse beaten, and that is Code of Honor, who is the early trailer in eighth. Vacoma leads here by three quarters of a length. The quarter went in 22 and three-fifth seconds. Vacoma by a length over Warriors Charge. Network Effect is in third. It's a break of two now. Back to McKinsey and Endorse. They are right together fourth and fifth. Then it is the trio of Hog Creek Hustle, Mr. Freeze, and Code of Honor. They begin the run around the far turn. It's still Vacoma. The lead's a half length. And the half mile went in 45 and four-fifth seconds. Warriors Charge races in second. Endorsed is in between horses. McKinsey is on the outside. Then it's Network Effect just in behind horses running in fifth. Code of Honor has drawn within three and a half lengths of the lead. Then it's Mr. Freeze and Hog Creek Hustle as they come for the top of the stretch in the run-happy Met Mile. Vacoma narrowly. Warriors Charge in behind is Network Effect. McKinsey's on the outside with it endorsed and out in the middle of the track it is code of honor they're coming down for the 16th pole and here comes code of honor on the outside vacoma continues the battle on down at the rail it is vacoma who's gonna win the run happy met mile vacoma the winner close for second between network effect and code of honor and the mile was run in one minute 32 and four fifth seconds and the number two vacoma pays 590 with a buyer of 104 so not the 110 from last time out, but still good enough to win. And Network Effect runs second again at a nice big price. Do you think that when you see that type of difference, even though the horse did lose by seven, that when people see this now happen back to back, they, people just kind of almost feel dumb, not realizing that they could just put this exactly if they liked Vacoma so much already on top, which they must have, but the horse went off at nine to five. Well, actually, I don't think that's the case in this one because the exact only paid $44 despite the prices. And this is something that Harvey Pack used to tell me years ago, and, and the doc used to tell me a lot, and they're right. They're coupled horses. Vacoma and Network Effect have run together three times and run one, two, and all of those races now. And a lot of people have seen that. So that exact actually was poor value based on their win prices because they're coupled horses. So you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I thought that the, the, the result last time was exaggerated by the wet track. So I felt that Network Effect would run better. I didn't think he was good enough to, to be as effective as he was, but he got the right trip, and he's a nice, hard-trying horse that runs well every time. So I'm not shocked he ran well, and I was happy he ran well. So. A horse like Hog Creek Hustle, 56-1, to 1, finishing dead last. Well, they're, they're just going to cut this horse back, right? That just seems to me like they're not going to stretch him out, obviously, but I think a mile might just be a little bit too long for him. A mile's definitely too long for him. But, you know, with Hog Creek Hustle, you know, I'm not saying they have some big stud deal for him, but when – People retire their three-year-olds mm -hmm. for stud deals, and everybody piles on them because everybody believes they can tell owners how they should spend their money. <laughs> right. And when you have a guy spending a lot of money for horses, and he has an opportunity to take significant money off the table. How people can tell them they shouldn't do that is beyond me. Hungry Hustle is just not very good anymore. Mm -hmm. And he was a very good three-year-old, but he's not. I mean, he couldn't even win that race last time at Churchill. Yeah, and he was a really good three-year-old that they've kept in training. It just isn't that good a four-year-old. Now, I'm not saying they pass him in a big stud deal or whatever, but remember, sometimes these horses. It's we think about it more with fillies and mares. They get older and they lose step in their game. It happens with colts too, you know. And Hot Creek Hustle. I think he's a full horse. I don't think he's a gelding, right? Maybe I'm wrong. No, nope, four-year-old, four-year-old uh, colt. Yeah. So, so you know, you have to realize that's 
sometimes they're just not as good, and he's not as good this year. Let's talk about really good horseback. Let's talk about Code of Honor. Uh, you said he ran the best race. Do you think that with a race like this, it might be a hidden trip to where he might be extra odds at a race? Hopefully, we'll see him at Saratoga. And the fact that he can he can actually run against these older horses because I came into the idea that maybe he just wasn't going to be as good as an older horse, even though obviously his father was very good. I just, to me, the way he had run in the last, the last race, the Westchester one with 101 and he ran against endorsed in the mud. I just didn't know if he was ready to step up against the likes of a McKinsey or a Vacoma who seemed to be peaking at this point. No, I just didn't think he'd be particularly good value. I think he's a terrific horse and he's a classic show horse. that's getting better. And I know based on the, on the Foster beating Tom's Day Tots, not going to be easy in the Whitney, but I think Code of Honor has a real chance to do that. And I think they will. I don't know who else is coming there, but I imagine he will be a handful in that race. I, I don't see any reason to not trust Code of Honor. The only bad race he's run was when he shipped out to Santa Anita for the Breeders' Cup for whatever reason. But he's a very honest horse from a very good trainer. And I think you're going to see a big win or two from him before the year's up, if not more. I, I'm a I'm a fan, and I believe he will have a, a very good year. He might be a horse I'll never pick, but I but I I'm a big fan of his talent. I think he's terrific. Let's jump in to the last race of our podcast today, race number eleven. It was the mile and a quarter Grade Two Suburban. It is the return of Tacitus, the horse that everyone on social media has an opinion about that doesn't make sense here or there. Obviously, you picked him on the show, and you were very. Uh, oh, I didn't pick him. I picked Mr. Buff. Or pick Mr. Buff, and but you had you had a lot to say about Tacitus in uh, talking horses. Yeah, he was way the horse to beat. I mean, I just thought Mr. Buff would be a better price, and Mr. Buff didn't show up at all. I don't think he was being Tacitus anyway, but he didn't show up at all. He was awful, and and one of the reasons Tacitus had this exaggerated, you know, um, margin of victory was that both Sir Winston and Mr. Buff, the second and third most likely winners of the race, just did not show up at all. So Moretti, um, you know, just plunked up for second over a long shot that was tough. Who, who my friend Richard Bigley referred to as a, I believe, I believe he said he was a hopeless long shot, <laughs> and I laughed. <laughs> it's just sort of funny. Um, I, not by the way, I didn't disagree with Richie. I'm not knocking him. I, I agree. Greg thought he had a chance to get a piece. I did not. Um, but I was very happy to see Tastis do well. I, I, I like Tastis as a horse, and you know, I defy anybody to. Um, give me the list of four-year-olds that are still running, because Omaha Beach obviously been retired, mm-hmm. that are better than Tacitus. Code of Honor is better than Tacitus. Pacoma probably is. He certainly is an accomplishment. So I'm not sure to mile and a quarter that Pacoma rates to be better than Tacitus, just as I'm almost certain that Tacitus isn't as good as Pacoma at seven furlongs and probably do a mile. But you can't say maximum security because <laughs> he was trained by a guy who's under federal indictment for using stancing drugs. And in fact, this is one of the horses in, that he was on tape drugging, right? Yeah, supposedly. Or yeah. the you know the the um, the charges are. So until Maxim Security shows for Bob Baffert that he can run as well, um, and he certainly got every right to with a good trainer like Bob Baffert, I'm not going to, um, I, I'm not going to um, say he's better than anybody. He's going to have to reprove it on the racetrack, in my opinion. Um, I don't know. He's not better. Mucho gusto. Um, well, he will. Well, Tassis beat him fair and square in the tra- Travers. Just go through horse by horse. And yeah. Carnival's really good. But the only time they met, Tassis drowned him. Tassis was third in the Derby. He was second in the Belmont. He was second in the Jim Dandy. He was second in the Travers. He was third in the Jockey Club Gold Cup. And the way people talk about him, you think he's this just bad horse. 
my guy, he's got a great resume. He's had a, a share of really bad luck in races, not his doing. And a couple of them pacing, you know, dynamics, but mostly just bad luck, unusually bad luck. And those kind of horses don't stay unlucky their whole year, suddenly their whole career. And then they, they get good and they win races. That's what we saw on Saturday. And that was the thing. Like I was trying to explain to people, it's like, okay, well, do, let's talk about the Belmont. Perfect trip. Joel had the race of the of the last hundred years that with that trip for Sir Winston. Then he stumbles right. as the favorite in the Jim Dandy. He runs second to what could be the second or third best older horse this year in Code of Honor. Maximum security. Apparently, he's coming back in the San Diego either this weekend or next weekend. So good luck with I look that. Forward to it. And then I hope he runs well. I, I do. I, I I hope he does well for Bob. But I, I'm. I don't. You have to be skeptical until he does it. You have to be. I mean, I, I've been skeptical of every horse Navarro Services like had sure. since the indictment. I've I've gotten burned on a few, and I've done okay with a few. It's just it's such a weird timing in our sport where something like this has happened with two trainers that like if you saw them in, in the book, it was just an automatic circle and move on, which hurt a lot of people more in the multi race bets than it did just betting a horse to win. Because like you can't keep the horse out, but you have to keep him in. You spent more money than you wanted to frequently, and also. Think of the number of times that service beat you with a horse at three or four to five and you ran second at 10 or 12 to one and what you could have won in that sequence that you didn't win because somebody that at least now is in being accused mm -hmm. of using performance enhancing drugs. I mean, he hasn't been proof. You know, he's not everybody's everybody's innocent until proven guilty. But our worst fears have a lot more substance. You know, we had a lot of fears about these guys going into it. Mm -hmm. And now there's a lot of substance behind it. Mr. Boss, so, the uh, the morning line price. I just couldn't believe that they when they thought this horse was going to be um, two to one, and he ends up going off at five to two. So, in retrospect, the the morning line was actually really good. I couldn't believe how short he was. I don't know what I seemingly missed. I, I look at the Clark and the Woodward; they just way off the board. I just look at him as a very very good smashing uh, New York bred that has a ton of speed that makes him dangerous in races like this, but. Seeing that in the other two open open races just made me very, very skeptical. Well, what the morning line was wrong about, and I thought they would be wrong about, and that's why I still stuck with Mr. Buff, was that he and Tassus would be pretty much the same price. Correct. I didn't believe that would be the case. I thought Tassus would be closer to the even money he was. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I, I had a different opinion of Mr. Buff. It proved not to be true. Um, he ran so badly, I'm not sure you can use that, but... For whatever reason, he has not shown up in races outside of the York Reds. I think that is, at this point, very fair. And it makes you almost appreciate a horse like Diversify even more, right? Absolutely. What a great horse he was. What did you end up doing from a wagering uh, point here to end the day? Did you have anything going, or was Zero. it just kind of just... Zero. Zero. I didn't feel like... Ultimately, I decided I didn't feel like taking 5-2 to two on Mr. Buff. And the more I thought about it, I wasn't sure. I made a pretty good pick. And at the end of the day, honestly... I wanted to see Tassidus win. Mm -hmm. Personally, I wanted to see him win. So I didn't. It was the end of the day. It was our last race. It was a long day. And I just enjoyed the race. For me, I took Moretti on top. I know that the last race being in the slop, it was definitely a speed-favoring day. I just thought maybe it was less the track and maybe hopefully more he was improving. And I might end up getting a decent price, which 7-2 to two to me isn't that good of a price either way. So The problem with Moretti, at least to me, was that his prior races were all so bad, relatively speaking, mm -hmm. that the only conclusion you could make was that he was carried by the racetrack and his ideal trip on that track last time. Because every race he ran was so significantly inferior to that effort mm -hmm. that I don't know how you could accept at face value a race in a biased situation where everything went his own way.
And I think it proved to be right. He was second at fault. And he and he clunks and he, and he and he clunks up and makes dinner. the race look better now. Now it looks like oh he actually can run okay. He ran second even though he got beat by eight lengths. It's like oh maybe he does fit in this instinct. Whereas no, and he did run. I think it was a hundred buyer out of the, or he ran like a ninety nine or. When, like, or he ran sorry race? he ran an 89 buyer in this race so obviously now he's back down to his normal races yeah he's just he's not that good <laughs> he might be better with some distance but he's gonna be like a lot of horses he'll be better when he gets everything in his own way and that's another one right because the people just say he bounced he didn't bounce he's got a great setup every single thing was perfect for him yeah. last time and that'll be about the top of the mountain for him let's watch tacitus win the grade two suburban right now and they're off. Parsimony is going out for the early lead. Then it is a Mr. Buff. Tacitus down the rail runs in third. On the outside is Moretti, along with Just Whistle. And a Belmont Stakes winner, Sir Winston, will be the early trailer in sixth as the field heads for the backstretch. And it is big long shot Parsimony with the lead over Mr. Buff. Parsimony by a length. Mr. Buff runs in second. Moretti is third by a head. Tacitus, the favorite down on the inside, runs in fourth. Length and a half to just whistle in fifth. And it's three lengths to Sir Winston. The opening quarter mile was run in 24 and three-fifth seconds as they move up the Belmont backstretch. Parsimony on the inside. Mr. Buff right there on the outside. The two of them are heads apart. And they've got nearly three lengths on Moretti in third. Followed by Tacitus, just whistle. And then it's another four or five lengths back to Sir Winston, who is a dozen lengths from front runners, Parsimony and Mr. Buff. The half went in 48 and one-fifth seconds. Parsimony at the rail leads by a half length. Mr. Buff on the outside is second by three. Tacitus is now on the move as the field races midway around the far turn. Three-quarters went in 110 and four. Parsimony, Mr. Buff. Here's Tacitus three wide, Sir Whistle is four wide, and in behind is Moretti. As the field comes for the top of the stretch, Parsimony, here's Tacitus on the outside, Mr. Buff is under the whip and racing in third. Here comes Tacitus right alongside of Parsimony, and it is Tacitus to take over the lead with a furlong to the finish. Tacitus now draws away, and Tacitus is pouring it on here. He's going to win the 134th Suburban. Tacitus by eight lengths, and it was a photo for second between Moretti and Parsimony. And the number one Tacitus wins, paying 420 with a 100 buyer. When you see a horse like this win, Andy, obviously everyone you know is so split down the middle on social media. Some people hate the horse, some people love the horse. Did you feel like now the naysayers kind of have to like you know stuff it and like eat it for a day, or this horse now might improve? Obviously, the Woodward is a mile and a quarter as well this year. He might end up winning a couple more races this year. Might win three more races this year. Um, no, you know I've I've learned in my my days and and being involved in social media that the people who have bad opinions they hold on to them. Like they're holding on to a life raft mm-hmm. in the ocean. So no, I don't expect people to go. Oh, I was wrong. Uh, you don't. You don't hear people who are wrong all the time. They seem to hold on to their wrongness like it's a life raft. So no, I, I don't expect and them to. It, it's it's so funny too. Everyone does. A lot of people like you know smart smart people quote unquote smart people on social media don't like the horse and the horse is still going off at six to five. So obviously. 
it's not so like they should be happy this horse keeps going off at a short price because that's giving them the chance to beat the horse with a much better priced horse. Just as the people that don't understand buyer figures and make ridiculous comments about them should be happy. If they're right and buyer figures are bad, they're going to make money. You know, um, the smartest person I know um, talks about process, decision making. And as long as your process is sound, you don't always worry about the results. You know, you, you, you take into account that the results are going to work against you, but it's like value. It's like finding things. You ever read the book Thinking Fast and Slow? I, Daniel Kahneman. I have not, but I think I have to now at this point. If you're giving me a book recommendation, I have you should, to. You should read. You, everyone should read Thinking Fast and Slow. But the idea is, it's it's. Did you come to a wrong conclusion because your thought process was bad, or did you come to a wrong conclusion because you knew that X percentage of time you were going to be wrong? You know, is if your thought process is sound, the the the, the good results will come over time. Um the thought process that Tastis is a bad horse because he's had some bad trips and bad race setups is a flawed thought process. And it will continue to be one forever and ever until you change it. You know, I, I think there is think when you were wrong and understanding when you maybe had a flawed thought process is the only way that you're going to be able to correct it and make it better going forward. Some people do it. Some people don't. I think there has never been a better chance to stop the podcast with that great wisdom from Andy Serling. Andy, where can people reach out to you on social media? Very complicated. At Andy Serling. I mean, as long as they don't put a T in my last name, at least when they're not trying to insult me, they'll figure out my Twitter account. (laughs) And guys, let's just have fun out there. I've seen so many wrong things on social media the last couple of weeks. I had someone post literally that it used to be fun on social media. And now we just have people as soon as someone brings up an opinion, if someone has an inkling that it's wrong, just bashing them. Let's try and be a little bit friendlier on social media. Let's try to actually get good opinions rolling for real. Let's try to be more friendly in life. Let's try to uh, think about other people in general, you know? So yeah, I agree. Social media, life in general. Andy, pleasure having you on again. Appreciate it so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's fun. Thanks to all the great fans for listening to the show and my very special guest, Andy Serling. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's president is Pierre Thomas Fornatel. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And our In The Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Lugambule, and we will see you next time. Mm